the National Archives podcast series. A low, artful, wicked man. Poverty riots and bread. The response of government to the crises of the 1790s. Presented by Paul Carter and Julie Halls. Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Julie Halls, and I work with my colleague Paul Carter in the modern domestic team at the National Archives. This afternoon's talk is called A Low, Artful, Wicked Man, Poverty, Riots and Bread, and it's about a period of immense hardship for the poor in this country in the 1790s and the government's response to it. I'm going to be focusing on the background to the crisis and the evidence that can be found in the Board of Trade correspondence for the period, and Paul's going to talk about how these records link together with those of the Home Office in the same period. The quotation is from a letter written by Sir Francis Bassett, a wealthy landowner in Cornwall, to the Duke of Portland, then Home Secretary, about the shortage of grain in Cornwall. He's trying to prevent grain being exported from Cornwall at a time when there's only enough in the county for 14 days subsistence for the poor. He says that if the grain is exported, the most serious consequences may probably happen. Our people are, I hope, generally well disposed, but many evil-minded persons have been about the country, stirring them up to riot and tumult. He worries that a low, artful, wicked man might drive them to outrage. He seems more concerned about the imminent danger of riots than people going hungry. As we'll see later, the authorities sometimes seem more concerned about maintaining law and order than the welfare of the poor, who were expected to suffer in silence. The 1790s was a tumultuous decade, with war and famine major factors. We're used to thinking of the phrase the home front in the context of the Second World War, but this talk is going to be about the home front during the war with France that started in 1793. A well-known Gilray image of the same year captures the situation. In the first section we can see John Bull, the ordinary man, sitting at a warm fire surrounded by his family and looking very well fed. Next he's seen marching off to war with France. In the third image, we see the effects on his family of losing the breadwinner, especially during a period of shortages. We can see them taking their belongings to the pawn shop. Finally, John Bull returns from war in a terrible state to find his family on the verge of starvation and surviving on onions. A range of factors help to make this particular decade so explosive and so significant from a historical perspective. In 1789, the French Revolution began and its influence carried across the Channel, kick-starting a movement for change over here. Thomas Paine wrote The Riots of Man, in which he argued that political revolution is acceptable when a government doesn't safeguard its people, their natural rights and their national interests. Working-class people began to band together to discuss political issues, forming groups such as the Corresponding Societies, which met across the country and wrote to each other to communicate their ideas. When hardship came in the form of food shortages, they were less passive than they might otherwise have been, and the government response more defensive. On top of this already unsettled political situation, a series of events conspired to create a crisis in the 1790s. In 1793, we went to war with France. As well as the hardships caused directly by the war itself, the war also increased the problem of food shortages 
as disruptions to shipping made it extremely difficult to import cheap corn into Britain. Corn was used in this period as a general term for all types of grain, but tended to refer to wheat. The difficulties of relying on foreign imports became very apparent, and a Board of Agriculture was set up in 1793, carrying out a series of county investigations into agriculture and its importance to Britain. In 1794-5, when shortages were really taking hold, the government carried out a crop census to try to understand the extent of the shortages and the difference between crop yields in good and bad harvests. Between 1794 and 1796, there were widespread food riots across England and Wales. The price of bread rose and in an attempt to address the problems, the poor law allowance system was popularised. A calculation was made as to the subsistence wage needed by a poor family and as the price of bread fluctuated, the wage would be topped up to meet this subsistence level. This came to be known as the Spienenman system. Unfortunately, it led to wages being lowered as employers realised they would be topped up at the expense of the ratepayer so that effectively ratepayers ended up subsidising farmers and other employers. In 1797 there was a series of mutinies by sailors of the Royal Navy. These were potentially dangerous for Britain at a time when we were at war with the revolutionary government of France. There were concerns among some members of the British ruling class that the mutinies might be the trigger to a wider uprising similar to the French Revolution. In 1798 the corresponding societies were outlawed, as were trade unions and 1799 to 1800 saw further widespread food riots across England and Wales. Between 1788 and 1792, a typical working class family spent about 70% of their income on food and corn formed about 60% of the typical diet. It's easy to see why a shortage could quickly lead to hunger and malnutrition. As well as the war with France, other factors came together to cause a scarcity of corn in the 1790s. Since the 1740s, the population had increased steeply, causing the demand for agricultural goods to exceed supply after 1795. However, we had become a net importer rather than an exporter of corn as the Industrial Revolution took hold and Britain started to make its money from manufacturing and industry. Importation of grain, meat and dairy produce became crucial. On top of these factors, there was a series of poor harvests in the 1790s, 8 out of 10 during the decade. People resorted to all sorts of cereal substitutes, with even nettles commanding market prices. Although the government was reluctant to use the term famine, it preferred to say scarcity, Lord Auckland, a member of the Board of Trade, defined his understanding of famine in a letter to William Pitt in 1795, saying, By famine I mean the want of wheat sufficient to furnish the lower and labouring classes with a species of food which long usage has made a necessary of life to them. By this definition, periods during the 1790s could be regarded as periods of famine. Although people might not actually have starved to death, mortality owing to hunger-related disease increased. The Board of Trade was in charge of assessing the country's food requirements and regulating the supply by restricting or relaxing import and export of corn under the Corn Laws. Until the 1790s, it had been preoccupied with trade with the colonies, 
but now it became increasingly concerned about the question of corn, the administration of successive corn laws and the problem of trying to secure imports. The indexes to the minute book in BT59 reflect the volume of correspondence. There are several pages of entries on the subject. The Corn Laws had the effect of benefiting landowners rather than the poor who depended on grain for their staple diets. When corn was plentiful, prices were low, exports were permitted and imports were reduced. When there was a scarcity and prices were high, exports were reduced and imports were increased. This system, which operated at the level of individual districts, had worked reasonably well during peacetime, but now that there was a war, the cost of corn had escalated. It was impossible to import sufficient quantities because of disruptions to shipping. The repercussions for the poor were terrible, as the correspondence shows. A letter in March 1794, in BT 111, from officials in Banff in Scotland, says that the effect of the 1791 Corn Act in their area has been terrible. It is prohibited to carry flour or grain via the coast into any district in which the average prices are low enough to permit exportation, the assumption being that low prices indicated plenty of corn. In their area, the price is always low because the grain they produce is of an inferior quality. They never have wheat or flour to export and so always rely on imports. Now they're not being allowed to import much-needed wheat or flour. They say they're rendered aliens to other parts of the kingdom, just as much as the French are at present. A letter from officials in Newcastle to the Board of Trade in 1795, also in BT 111, asks the Board to open the port to imports. A consequence of the 1791 Corn Law was that, when the price of corn was high, the ban on exports included those along the coast to other areas within the country. Customs officials sometimes confiscated corn and held it in warehouses or insisted on it being sent back rather than allowing it to be landed and distributed. The letter describes the effects of the scarcity of corn in Newcastle and says that importing it is the only way to prevent tumult and they have every reason to dread the consequences should no relief be granted to this application. These fears proved to be well-founded, and riots broke out around the country as the shortages took hold. In some areas, local militias took part in the protests. Prices peaked dramatically during the periods of scarcity. Some farmers held on to stock to raise the prices of corn still further, and ruthless competition took place between different districts trying to get supplies. Reports were coming in thick and fast about the danger of supplies running out. Some local areas prohibited the sending of wheat out of their area until it had been offered to the overseer of the poor, and these blockades were extended by groups of protesters. This increased the suffering in urban areas. For example, in Birmingham, flour prices doubled in July 1795 and bakers stopped production. 14,000 people were estimated to be at serious risk. On the 5th of August 1795, a report said that corn was not to be had at any price in Stourbridge, and on the same day in Hull, millers declared they would have to stop work. An exchange of correspondence between Henry Dundas 
Lord Advocate of Scotland, and the Duke of Portland, the Home Secretary, illustrates the attitude of the ruling class towards the crisis. The correspondence was sent to the Board of Trade because it related to the Corn Laws. Dundas is sending the Home Secretary a copy of a memorial or petition he's received from some bakers and manufacturers in Dumfries. They're protesting that, despite the poor harvest and consequent high price of wheat, some merchants are buying up stocks of wheat from farmers at a very high price to sell on to other districts suffering from shortages. They're asking that a stop be put to this practice to support the inhabitants of the area and prevent a scarcity. In his covering letter, Dundas says, The farmer and landowner might too with justice complain of their property being subjected to the pleasure of the baker and corn dealer if any interference with their market was to take place, such as is pointed at in the memorial for the corn dealers. Dundas feels that the markets should be allowed free reign. Dundas follows up his letter to the Duke of Portland with another, enclosing a letter from a man called James Craig, who he describes as a very experienced and intelligent corn dealer who supports his own point of view. Craig says that this is not the time to make any changes to the Corn Law, as it would only tend to waken the jealousy of the lower class of people and create a contention or misunderstanding between them and the land proprietors, which above all things should at this time be avoided. In other words, the most important thing is to make sure that people know their place and aren't given the impression that they can influence the thinking of their superiors. Between 1799 and 1801, prices reached a new peak with another terrible harvest in 1799. There were reports of people killing livestock and even their horses because of the rising cost of oats and other animal feed. There was a new outbreak of riots and protests and the conflict of interest between the producers and consumers of food threatened to escalate into civil war. In October 1800, the President of the Board of Trade, the Earl of Liverpool, warned his Cabinet colleagues that there will be insurrections of a very serious nature and that different bodies of yeomanry may possibly fight each other. Those of the cities and great manufacturing towns who are adverse to the farmers will fight those of the country who will be disposed to defend them. This quotation shows just how worried the government was. Already local militia were involved in the riots and now there was a fear that the fighting would break out between different parts of the country. But although it was afraid that the situation in this country might mirror the French Revolution, the government seemed at a loss to know what to do and even tried to argue that the food shortages were outside its control. I'm now going to hand over to Paul who's going to talk about the Home Office response to this situation. OK, well, thanks very much for that, Julie. Um, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to concentrate on the Home Office and the Home Office records that were produced at the same time, if you like, the 1790s, just as Julie's been talking about the records within the Board of Trade. I'm going to move on to the records of the Home Office. Now, the records that I'm going to talk about aren't records that the Home Office created. They are records that the Home Office collected. This is a, a series called HO42, 
technically this is the Home Office domestic correspondence, George III. Not the most enlightening or necessarily inspiring title for a set of records, but certainly one of the most interesting. Uh, the records cover 1782 to 1820, but I'm going to concentrate on those for the 1790s. Now, if you go to the list of these records, whether it's online or in the paper lists here at the National Archives, you'll see at the beginning that each, each box, because that's what they are, they're boxes of incoming letters, each box of HO42 at the beginning of the series just says letters and papers and then the dates next to it. So HO42-1 is a box called letters and papers and it's April to December 1782. And then HO42-2 is letters and papers January to June 1783. So the records themselves are organised chronologically within this series. They are sent in by magistrates, perhaps employers, manufacturers, uh, laws lieutenants, worthies, for, the, for want of a better word. It's local worthies who are sending in these letters to the Home Office. And they're sending in uh, whatever it is that they feel central government should be aware of. So it might be stuff about law and order and crime, it might be about sedition, it might be about strikes and combinations or trade unions of workers. It's whatever is happening in their part of England and Wales that they want to bring to the attention of central government. But you can see from that explanation of that beginning list for HO42, you can't really get into that very well. You can't say I'm looking for records from Yorkshire, or I'm looking for records about strikes, or I'm looking for records about sedition. If you follow that list through though, you'll see from round about 1790, 1791, the records have now been catalogued. In other words, somebody has gone through each of the boxes and they've gone through letter by letter and they've described it and said, you know, who is it from? Where is it from? What is the content? Who, who is mentioned? What other places are mentioned? What subject matters um, are, are within, the, within the record? And this is part of an ongoing project at the moment to catalogue all of this incoming correspondence from across England and Wales for the whole of the 1790s that are in HO42. Now, it's, it's been quite a, a, a long process, um, but we've now got some money from our friends, the Friends of the National Archives, uh, who gave us an amount of money to digitise the records. And we have various groups in different parts of the country who are using those scanned images and cataloguing the material, which we are then putting up uh, in the catalogue. And that's how this material is being catalogued. It's a group of volunteers who are off-site uh, who are working to a colleague of mine, Chris Heather, and that's how the material uh, is being catalogued. In addition to the volunteers off-site, we've also got a volunteer who's been working on these records for a couple of years now, uh, John Clifford, and he, he really acted as a catalyst to get a lot of this material catalogued. Um, we've also got a volunteer who has worked on site with us for some years on these records, and that's John Clifford. 
and he started work on these a few years ago, starting in 1795 uh, and working backwards. So what kind of records then does HO42 contain? Well, it's a bit of a miscellaneous. There are printed materials in there, handwritten materials in there. There'll be little notices or handbills. And so I'm just going to give you a flavour so you can see what's, what's in there. I mean, Julie's mentioned how with the, the poor seasons uh, and the, the inability to produce enough foodstuffs for our own population and the, and the problems that brought us in terms of not enough food to go around, but the difficulties of importing foods. She's also mentioned the political problems uh, that were caused in this country by the French Revolution and the new ideas about egalitarianism and about fairness and equality. And it's really how this is to be combated and it's the state's response to that that we're really interested in. So within the records, you'll find items around charity and the provision of foodstuff and other goods for the poor. For example, uh, in 1842-34, we find a letter for William Devane's Westminster and an MP for Barnstable. He refers to a plan. It's a printed item, and he refers to a plan to mobilise voluntary assistance for the poor. And he argues that the provision of bread and meat and coals would prevent combinations to raise wages. In other words, the provision of charity would undermine working class aspirations through combinations or trade unions. That's what he's worried about, the rise of trade unionism in the 1790s. Uh, and he encloses a printed appeal uh, on behalf of the, the meeting addressed to the principal inhabitants of St James Parish, Westminster, for donations for the relief of the parish poor in view of the severity of the weather, the high price of bread and unemployment locally. So you'll get those kind of items within there. A, a what, is, what is it that we should do to combat the rise of trade unions and the rise of sedition in the 1790s while recognising there is a real economic problem for those who are poor. Um, you also get letters from around the country describing what's happening in terms of the rights and disturbances. So this is a letter for some, uh, from Sir John Carter. He's the mayor of Portsmouth in Hampshire and he, he reports on the rightless behaviour caused by high food prices. And he, he goes on to say that the disturbances, those involved in the disturbances, the writers themselves, are abetted by junior ranks of the Gloucester Regiment of Militia and that this was only quelled uh, with the aid of General Cullier and the regiment's officers there. So the, the danger there, and one of the reasons why this letter I think is really quite important, is it's a description how the local armed militia were taking sides and were really taking the side of those who were involved in the disturbances, the writers themselves. And that comes from April 1795. There's also a letter here from Sir Francis Bassett um, and I think uh, that Julie's already referred to this letter and you can see how the Board of Trade and the Home Office They'll, they'll perhaps sometimes copy letters and send these across. You've got government departments talking to each other on this. Um, now, Bassett's letter is from May 1795, and what he reports 
is that uh, in Cornwall, there's no more than 14 days' worth of grain. Uh, at the end of 14 days, there'll be no more grain to go around. And he asks that the order to ship 6,000 barrels of flour to London is countermanded, as this will probably lead to riots. Uh, he goes on to a, you know, a few other things that he wants to say, uh, in particular the alarm caused in Cornwall by the posting there of the Northamptonshire militia. And I think that's another feature of this. The militia uh, of one county is tended to be posted elsewhere, so that what you're not doing is coming up against your own family uh, and, and friends. But of course that, that leaves the authorities with a real problem. If you don't move these 6,000 barrels of flour to London, then London could end up with less grain than needed and you could end up with riots and disturbances in London and I guess this is another feature we're an industrialising nation at this period we're an urbanising nation at this period and the government doesn't feel that what it can do is simply stop the provision and supply of grain being moved to industrial and urban centres like London and undoubtedly places like Manchester or Leeds, places that aren't producing grain but are vast consumers of grain. Now this problem of food riot prompts the government to examine how much food is being produced and within these records in HO42 and I've got an, an example here from HO42-36, the the state asks for the county governors to organise, if you like, a crop census uh, to provide written information on how many acres are being cultivated in terms of wheat or rye or barley or peas or beans. And within these records, you will see that there are hundreds of these returns from around England and Wales. It, it's not a national coverage. Some areas undoubtedly just did not respond. What's fascinating is the way in which they respond. I'm using an example at the moment, crop return from the division of Daventry, consisting of the hundreds of Forsley and Gillsborough. And what this does is it records the number of cultivated acres for 1794 and 1795, which I think is what you will find within these records, a kind of a comparison of 1795 and the previous year's crops. Not all would do this. For a, for a local historian or a historian within this local area, it's quite a nice document and it gives you some, it gives you some data. Still needs to be interrogated, just like any other source. Um, but it gives you some, some real data. Some of the returns don't do that. Some of the returns will simply say, wheat, pretty good. Not as bad as last year. And of course there's only so much that government officials can do with that information. And it was found really that the crop censuses uh, in the middle of the 1790s provided really quite poor data and not a huge amount was done with them. Because what government hadn't done, it hadn't produced a form which you could send round and collect data in a standardised way. It allowed people to provide data in the way that they thought it might be useful or perhaps in ways they thought it might not be useful. But the result was is that a lot of data came back in a completely different format and it was just about impossible to, to use. So we're getting information about what kind of charitable action the elites felt that they should be doing. You're getting information 
on individual riots that are happening across the country. You're getting information on crops and how much acreage is under what kind of cultivation. The other aspect of this is politics. Because it's the 1790s, because the French Revolution has occurred, and because the state is worried about the rise of political groups, organisations like the London Corresponding Society, now that's perhaps the most well-known of the corresponding societies, but there are similar corresponding societies in Manchester, in Edinburgh, in Dundee, in Sheffield, and these organisations are looking at, well, how do we get out of these economic positions that we find ourselves? How do we get out of the economic problems that we have? And invariably, that always turns back onto a demand for the vote, for a popular franchise. Um, I'm looking at a document now. It's a, um, a letter from Edmund Lacon, who's the mayor at Great Yarmouth up in Norfolk. And it's concerning a disturbance following a lecture um, where John Thelwell was speaking, one of the major radicals of the, of, the, of the time. There's been a disturbance there. The local militia have been involved. Uh, there's been violence at the lecture that Thelwell was speaking at. And it accuses Thelwell, the, this, the, the a printed item here that, that Lakin has inserted, it accuses him of holding French-inspired pernicious opinions on politics and religion and the democracy. And you'll often find that word democracy used in a disparaging way in H.O.A. 42. It's used almost in a way that some people refer to anarchy. Um, and it talks about his opposition to the monarchy and the constitution, and that these were the ultimate cause of the incident. The incident being the lecture that he was given, uh, interrupted uh, and disturbed by others. You'll also find within the H.O. 42 records references to crime and legal cases. So you might find criminal documents in there which may or may not have resulted in uh, court action being taken. The example here is from 1797 and it's, the, it's their copies. They're copies of depositions of William King, George Pearson and Thomas Delve against a man called John Lovelace. And Lovelace is reported to have said, damn Pitt and all his party, the ministry is a set of damned rascals. Altogether, damn the war and the forerunners of it. And he goes on to make other similar expressions, contemptuous of established government. And those depositions are then found within this incoming correspondence. And again, what you've got an example of here is one of the local county worthies sending material into the Home Secretary to inform the Home Secretary of what kind of thing is happening here in regard to sedition in 1797. A further item, this is the printed resolutions, it's notice of Salford Magistrates, so again, rather like the, uh, the, the last item there, it's, this is to do with the, with the court. And this is the, the Salford Magistrates, uh, up in Lancashire. And they refer to weavers and other work people who have been urged by violent handbills and other inflammatory publications to oppose the recent Anti-Trade Union Combination Act. Now, 1799-1800, the 
state introduces and passes legislation that effectively outlaws trade unions. There'd been anti-trade union legislation before, but that tended to be legislation against particular trades or particular trades in particular places, whereas this was a more general sweeping set of legislation against trade unions per se. The magistrates themselves talk about the levels of current employment and the poor harvest of the 1790s as being events caused by divine providence. In other words, this is not something which the government can intervene on. This is something which has come from elsewhere and indeed um, from God. This is from November 1799, the end of the 1790s. Trade unionism is seen as a particular injury to the state, particularly an emerging industrial and trading nation. And of course, by this period, Britain is, is the premier industrial and trading nation. And the worry is how effective combinations or trade unions are. At the moment, I'm looking at a letter from Shields in the northeast. And it talks about a combination among the sailors who have prevented colliers, that's ships moving coal, coming down from the Tyne to London. And the writer complains of how it takes only a short time for these trade unionists to be effective. In other words, if the trade unionists can prevent the ship leaving at a particular time, it will it'll lose the tide. And that means now that the ship can't sail until the, the tide is favourable again. So the loss of an hour or even a few minutes, as this writer puts down, will mean the ships miss the tides and so then detained for a considerable time. So in other words, combinations, trade unions, they'd found particular ways of being very, very effective. And it's a result of that that the anti-trade union legislation of 1799-1800 uh, comes into being. It's that context. Now, I'm going to close really by referring to the title of our talk, and that's The Low, Artful, Wicked Man who might drive other people to outrage. And I want to argue that it's not about low and artful, wicked men. What happened in the 1790s was a particular set of economic circumstances, and natural circumstances, I guess, you know, the, the poor harvests. But the poor harvests were particularly important for the 1790s because we had stopped really being a grain exporting nation and we had become a grain importing nation. And that's why the poor harvest meant so much to us. But in the context of that, what do we say about the rioters in the 1790s? They're not artful, wicked men. Many of the riots aren't riots as we might think of them today. Some riots were very, very well organised. And there was an enforcement at some of these riots of what people considered to be a just price for grain, for wheat, and for other goods. So some of the riots might consist of farmers being made bereft of their goods, taken by the rioters, sold in the marketplace, and the money returned to the farmers. And that's not a riot that we see much of today. But I do think that what these men, and often women, were engaged in was a defence 
of, a, of an economy that the great English historian E.P. Thompson refers to as a moral economy. What people were fighting against and what they were arguing against was a free trade in goods and the search for the highest price. What these low and artful wicked men were looking for was for the state to ensure and impose a just price of sale on farmers and on middlemen and on employers. And I guess at that, it's time to stop. So, thanks very much. This event was recorded on the 25th of August 2011 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.